If you are in a country where, you know, you're doing manufacturing and we are, we are going to be needing a lot of manufacturing over these next few years as we have a transition in energy. This isn't just about moving around bits and bytes. This is about actually, you know, developing and putting in whole new systems, the sort of growth and expansion. This is like, you know, World War II sort of like push in terms of the investment and the activities that need to take place. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today, we welcome to the show, Jamie Webster. Jamie is a partner and associate director at the Center for Energy Impact at BCG. Among many things, he follows energy transitions, innovation and technology changes, and energy markets and geopolitics. Today, my colleague, Ben Cahill, talks with Jamie about system changes, what happens to an industry when demand peaks, and why it is important to understand these events when looking at the shifts we see happening in the energy sector today. Here's Ben to lead the discussion with Jamie. Jamie Webster, uh, partner and associate director of the Center for Energy Impact at Boston Consulting Group. So good to have you with us. Thanks for joining us for the podcast. Thank you, Ben. I'm also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Energy Policy up there at uh, Columbia. But thanks so much. It's uh, great to be here. Important addition. I'm glad you added that. So it's been a pretty eventful year for energy markets. Uh, there's no end of things to talk about. Obviously, a lot of turbulence and a lot of volatility in prices. And you know these short-term shocks that we're seeing come against the backdrop of a big long-term shift in global energy. I think that's one of the things that's made it both challenging and fun to try to make sense of it as an analyst. So we chatted a little bit earlier about some themes that we, you've been thinking about and that have also been on my mind too. One is just about you know the eternal debate about peak demand for various types of fuels and energy. And there's this eternal debate about you know peak oil demand. So we can talk about that. And I think the second theme, which is really critical, is this idea of resilience, how you do long-term planning especially when you face so much uncertainty about energy systems. So happy to have you here to talk about those two things. And maybe we could just jump in. I know you've been doing some work thinking about peaks for various types of uh, fuels or energies, other systems in the past. And, you know, maybe I'll just start with a broad question. You know, why did you decide to focus on this? Yeah, so this is this is a super interesting topic for me. I mean, you and I have been in prior companies together, and I remember in 2008, the run-up to 2008, there was this whole view that there would be a peak in supply for oil. And then after that, the narrative really shifted, and it's like, now it's going to be about a peak demand in oil. And I've seen multiple times where people are like, it's it's happening, it's already happened. There was a big push by several organizations as we went through COVID, which is like, hydrocarbons have peaked and it doesn't look like any of them have actually peaked, um, unfortunately. So I, I got interested in that because it's there's peaks that we that we need. So peaks that have we've needed in the past. So like one of the peaks that we needed in the past, not not us personally, but was London fog going down. So that went down in 1891 and it went down for a lot of reasons that are useful for us today. It went down because of regulation. It went down because of a change in the industrial core and how they handled all of that. And it really improved a lot of a lot of healthcare and and, and sort of health uh, outcomes. 
Then there's the peaks that we don't need, which is in the US, we are hit a peak of people that are in universities and colleges in 2012, which was surprising for me. Not helpful as you have IRA that was passed last year, and we actually need a lot of smart people to try to build a lot of stuff. And then there are the peaks that we're not sure if this matters or not. And for me, the one interesting one that actually has resonance with the oil markets is piano sales in the United States. Peaked in 1909. Interestingly enough, there were also around two years later, the number of companies peaked of around 259. Since then, piano sales are down to about 10%. So if you think of like the IEA's net zero report, even a bigger drop than what they had called for in oil. And the difference is that there's only three remaining piano companies. So it really points to if the net zero by 2050 is correct, you're also going to have a huge consolidation in the industry. And so for me, it just became really interesting to try to understand why are we getting this wrong? And what can this help us to, as we think about peaks, the peaks that we want and don't want as, as we move forward for the ultimate, I think right now, what a lot of us are focused on, which is the hope for peak in emissions and driving that down uh, to zero at some point in the hopefully nearer future than further future. Yeah. I mean, one thing that people often mention is that there are big shifts in the energy system and energy sources that have happened over time. But in absolute terms, the demand for almost everything just continues. It's not like energy sources disappear. So maybe you could just talk about that theme a little bit. Yeah. So 1901, we had a shift where we went from traditional biofuels to coal being the number one fuel. And then we had a shift in 1965 where oil overtook and became number one. Unfortunately, all of these transitions, and I think this is important when you're thinking about peaks, all of these transitions just were additions. So like traditional biofuels, depending on the data that you look at, just peaked a few, really peaked a few years ago. And we'll see if it actually holds true. I have a suspicion that in the last year, as many people were not able to pay for LPG or natural gas, those actually might have, have come back. So it's always been about additions. And I think that's important because you'll often hear people talking about peaks. It's like, oh, we had a peak in per capita, or we had a peak in this geography or it peaked relative to something else. And I think it's important when we're thinking about it from an energy standpoint, either for policymakers or even companies to think about in terms of like, what's the total amount that is needed? And is this going to actually be declining versus declining in one region versus another? Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because people often compare demand for fossil fuels with demand for other goods and services and products, which can peak and then disappear pretty quickly yeah. you know, if they become obsolete. And I think we've learned from past energy transitions, not necessarily true for most no, energy yeah, sources. We just need more and more and more. So we actually did a analysis, a historic analysis on some of IEA's uh, forecasts over the last 20 years. And what we've seen is that they have fairly consistently under forecast oil demand Natural gas demand, we didn't look at coal demand, we probably need to, but I have a suspicion I know where that's probably at. And we also looked at renewables. And in each case, they are always, it, it was actually, the actual was more than what they expected. So it's not just that it's getting things off and that oil is not peaking, natural gas is not peaking, coal now doesn't seem to be peaking after we thought it maybe did in, in 2014, but that it actually 
were as a whole still need more energy. And so this view that uh, GDP and energy demand is going to decouple, which it has in some countries in the West, is going to magically decouple in countries that have so you think of like the UK, it's a powerhouse in finance and legal, you know, and so obviously you would expect that their GDP and their energy use would be kind of far apart from one another versus if you are in a country where, you know, you're doing manufacturing and we are, we are going to be needing a lot of manufacturing over these next few years as we have a transition in energy. This isn't just about moving around bits and bytes. This is about actually, you know, developing and putting in whole new systems, the sort of growth and expansion. This is like, you know, World War II sort of like push in terms of the investment and the activities that need to take place. Yeah. I mean, I guess the flip side of that, though, is that it's difficult to predict these long-term shifts in energy, right? One of the things that all the forecasters have struggled with is how much the costs have been driven down for renewables like solar and wind in terms of the capacity additions and deployment and things like battery costs that have declined much faster than anyone would have predicted. So if you're thinking about substitutability and adding one source that then displaces something which is dirtier and more problematic for society, maybe we'll have different shifts in the future and maybe things will happen faster because it's clearly better to swap in one source I, for I'm, another. I'm hoping that we do, but I think what we probably need is we just need probably just a whole lot more renewables than is taking place. And I think part of the issue for that is the ability to actually construct and actually get this stuff cited, uh, particularly in the West. Austin Goolsby put out a paper on construction productivity just uh, a few weeks ago. And the interesting thing is that a kind of construction worker today builds less than they would have in 1970. And that ability to kind of get that, and it's we really need to be able to grow a lot faster and construct a lot quicker. So this is true for a whole bunch of different, uh, different reasons. And the problem with it is a lot of times there's a discussion in this country about, well, it's just permitting, but it's it's permitting, but it's also about the uncertainty in terms of getting and how long it's going to actually take to go through this. Is this going to be a year before I actually start getting money back or is this going to be 15 years? Can I get the the labor that I that I need, which is, you know, in this country especially, we haven't done a really good job of kind of fostering those sorts of workers so that we get more of them uh, to happen. So I think there's just so much more growth that needs to happen that we haven't seen over the last uh, few years. And it's a, it's a real mind shift, I think, that, that we need, particularly in the West. Yeah, definitely. We just need to build things faster. There's a lot of bits that go into that. I guess on this theme of, of transitions, so transitions happen for various reasons, right? It might be a technological breakthrough. It could be a policy-driven shift. It could be consumer preferences. There are all kinds of things. Maybe you could just share a little bit about... Sure. So I the way I look at it is there are different types of peaks that happen, and then there are the causes for those peaks. So let me talk quickly through um, some of the types. So one of them is the kind of temporary peak, and we are well aware of this in the recent years. Coal that peaked, as we've already talked about, and has come back up. In the US, it was thought that the millennials weren't going to be driving, and so it looked like gasoline had peaked in like 2005, 2006. Not the case. But we've also had a peak further back, and that was electric car sales uh, in the early 1900s, where those were 30, 40% of total sales. And then there was a big push by Henry Ford and others. There were several things that were happening, but one of the things that I found most interesting was that 
it was lined up as electric cars were more of a feminine alternative and you wanted a car that made a lot of noise you know and and was and was tough so even henry ford's own wife drove an electric car and so there was this push and so you you had a temporary peak there that is now of course electric cars are now zooming again so really really you know 100 years of that temporary peak so that's one is is a temporary peak one you've got a kind of a plateau water use in the united states peaked in 1980 and it's basically been kind of flat um since then You've got your steady decline. Uh, the classic one, I'll say it's classic, is skiing in 2010, 2011 had a peak. Since then, it's it's come down slightly. That one has been what I would call a supply-led transition versus a demand-led transition, which I'll talk about in a bit. Then you've got the collapse. So one is, of course, horses. We all have seen that one as, as people looking at different forms of transportation and how those have, have gone about. Nassim Taleb has a really good one on the well-being of a turkey and how it keeps on going up until just before Thanksgiving. It it no longer it no longer uh, goes up. Uh, and then the other collapse is uh, 1883. Before 1883, the United States had more than 50 time zones, and that year we basically moved to the four time zone system with some some irregularities with Indiana and other sort of places. So that's that's the collapse. Then there's um, echoes where we've seen things that have that were really quite high and fallen down and now come back a little bit. Less energy sort of ones associated with that, but that's like the rise of, you know, people buying records again. Uh, coffee, yeah, coffee is another one. Coffee actually peaked in this country at uh, in 1947 at 48 gallons of person. And then the other one, which is related to energy, is the anticipatory peaks. The peaks that are like, this is coming, this is coming, and the the danger of that is an anticipatory peak is you can end up having investment slow down, which we've seen, you know, you've several organizations, Columbia just put out one just a couple of weeks ago themselves on how there has not been enough investment in oil and gas. The industry is investing as if net zero is actually happening, but we haven't told the consumers that that is actually the case, and so you're seeing this kind of uh, kind of drive following the right trajectory on the supply side, but not on the demand side exactly. in terms of this. And I think that's where you where a real shift is needed. I'll quickly go over. So the causes are, you know, you've got social change. So this is anything from you know societal pressure or or fads or um, things like that, fall in smoking, all of that sort of stuff. Um, you've got substitution because something's just cheaper. You've got substitution because something's just better. So like our cell phones are much, much better than the landline. They also cost a whole lot more, but we willingly switch to them, not because there was a push to try to make wires much more expensive and to make the phone that you used to rent in your house more expensive, but it was just a much better sort of, uh, sort of product. Then you've got overt government policy. I remember when I was a kid, you couldn't get near the Potomac River here, and now it's a lot better. You've got the inadvertent government policy. I'm sure you know the country, but I won't name it. But there is a country in the Middle East where it is a benefit to not finish your house because then you're not taxed on it. So there's always some project where it's like it's not quite finished yet. And then you've got kind of second order effects, decline of pensions uh, because, of, because of the push to try to bring in 401ks. There's a couple of examples in the Pacific Northwest as it relates to logging um, as well. So those are sort of the different ways I would think about uh, the different transitions that can happen. 
And I think it's important to kind of look at, you know, so we've had a, a number that have taken place that are like kind of those overt or societal sort of pressures to try to raise the cost of capital for oil and gas, you know, the whole push of kind of keep it in the ground. So those are some of the some of the things that that I've seen. Yeah. So given that broad array of different types of transitions and peaks in the past, I mean, to bring it back to energy and climate, you know, we have net zero targets. Everyone's got a 2050 target. We have to think about all kinds of transitions and when they're going to happen and accelerating them as fast as we can. What do you think all this means about how we should think about emissions and also different types of energy and maybe the fallacies of forecasting, but also just being safe in our assumptions? Yeah. I think one, I think some of the errors that we have made is really almost driven more in hope or an expectation or a real or a recognition of just looking at the numbers and saying we we need you know x fuel to peak because the reason we need it is because we need to be able to address the climate and the way we can do that is to is to bring that down but i also think it's important to be realistic about where we actually sit right now and what the trajectory um for it is so with that i think there's been a lot of push over the last several years on the supply side it, and it makes a lot of sense politically. It's it's easy to kind of vilify companies. It's also the cost is easier versus telling consumers, you know, you need to shift to this or, or, or do things like that. It's more complex to do that. And so that push on the supply side raises the cost of capital, makes it more difficult, slows down the incentive to do that. The negative part of that is that is what we've seen in the past year, which is that if you aren't investing enough, then the price ends up going much higher. Those companies end up making a lot of money and the costs end up getting socialized, particularly in the global south and in those populations in well-off countries that can't pay for it. And so the cost of that kind of gets socialized. As you and I both know, when looking at commodities, especially energy commodities, keeping demand and supply balanced is darn near impossible and very rare. As we want to bring down demand, trying to bring down supply down at the exact same time is unlikely to happen. So if you look at it from that standpoint and say, okay, these probably aren't going to match, is one better to go down first versus the other one? And if supply goes down first relative to demand, and you assume that both of them are hopefully coming down, the negative impacts are the costs end up going, you know, consumers around the world end up paying the cost. You also end up having new players that see an opportunity and perhaps start developing some new, you know, new oil plays or new gas plays or new coal plays. And so you start building out this sort of uh, capability. Or in the case of Pakistan in the last couple of weeks, they're going to triple their coal-fired uh, power generation because they no longer trust that they can get LNG to come in. Um, versus on the demand side, if demand actually comes down first, prices come down. So you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with Jevons' paradox and, and the fact that as prices go down, you generally people are going to look to use um, more of that. But if the demand goes down, the costs of that are more associated to the companies. And so any sort of negative impact is probably going to be impacting more the companies rather than being socialized. The other part is that if it is a supply-led transition, you're likely going to get some kickback where 
we talk about a need for a just energy transition. But one of the reasons why we need a just energy transition is so that the energy transition can happen. Because if you don't have the ability to get the sort of fuels that you need, then these populations and these countries are going to end up boosting their own production. Uh, and so I think more and more focus needs to be on the demand side. So there's things like we need to we need to get a lot more electric cars and we need to get them a lot cheaper. We need a lot more renewables to kind of come in there. And I think there needs to be a greater thinking through the innovation of similar to what we saw with cell phones. This this isn't just the right thing to do for the climate. This is this is just better. This is just a better product. You know, you're not going to have you're not going to have outages. Uh, I'm up in uh, Portland, Oregon. We have outages all the time. So if you could like, oh, we'll put on rooftop solar, you won't have these power outages that you have all the time. It's just a moving to a better product will help beyond just because we've seen the prices have been coming down and so it should be able to to get that going but if we can also add on there some additional innovation some new sort of products where it makes more sense anybody that has driven a tesla or an electric car versus an ice vehicle at least most of the people that i talk with it's just it just feels a lot better it's less maintenance it's a lot easier to deal with um once you kind of get past some of the issues that people focus on it's a better product. The problem with it right now is it is still a rich person's product. So I think one area where all these things have come to a head, just to bring it back to the short term, maybe away from longer term transitions towards today's reality is the situation we've seen in Europe in the last year. Right? We had a shock to the system. All of a sudden, Europe had to find alternatives to Russian gas, which accounted for something like 45% of their imports, 40% of total gas consumption. They had to get rid of Russian crude and petroleum products. I mean, a big shock to the system. And, you know, it raises this whole question about how you build a resilient system, how you put pieces in place today to accelerate the progress towards a really different energy reality in the shortest time possible. And that is really hard to do. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the, the importance of demand side measures. So in the United States, we have this in the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, a huge um, amount of that is about consumer subsidies and, you know, and tax breaks for, for corporate investment and all kinds of things. In Europe, they have the Repower EU plan. And a really important plank of this is about energy efficiency, lowering consumption. These things have been really critical in the past year, and it's helped Europe so far make it through this winter in better shape than we thought they would. But from a planning perspective, you know, it's really hard to pull this stuff off. I'm going on a bit, but to me, one area where this is really coming to the fore is the question about gas in Europe over the medium to long term. So Europe has the Fit for 55 plan. They want to reduce emissions by 55% by the year 2030. Signing long-term gas contracts you know, comes right up against that 2030 target. And it's been really hard to commit to longer-term contracts because you know, they're committed to these climate targets. And so it shows a bit of a conflict between short-term energy needs today and over the next five years, say, and the longer-term trajectory. This is a very long question, but let me just ask you to comment on what's happened in Europe in the past year. How do you think it brings to light some of these questions about systems planning and how to build a resilient system with so much change happening? So I think Europe probably went a little, as we all know, probably went a little bit all in too much and, and had too much of an expectation that the 
connectedness with Russia in terms of flows of energy and flows of money back would be enough to improve kind of energy security to the to the extent they wouldn't need to worry about it. Um, I talked to a couple people right after this happened, and which is surprising as an American, they had not energy security was not really something that they ever really considered uh, and had thought about a whole lot, which I'll assume that those were not policymakers or, or things like that. But I was a little bit um, surprised by that. But they hadn't really set themselves up very well. But since then, Europe has been incredible. I mean, they've been incredibly dynamic and quick on policy. The communities have really partly driven by the fact that it just is, it costs a whole lot more, have brought down their costs um, and brought down their demand. So in this past few months, we've seen this winter, we've seen uh, natural gas demand down 23% across the EU. So that's been quite incredible. This policy that they put in to boost their natural gas storage as quickly as possible, bring it to 80% by the beginning of withdrawal season and next year to bring it by 90%. You know, that was a stroke of, you know, that is the sort of thing that you need. You need a lot more storage. And as we move to these new energies, you're going to need different sorts of storage. They're also trying to think as they're building out their storage, making these investments more future-proof. So natural gas facilities that also could potentially be used to um, to store hydrogen or some other sort of new fuel. So there's been a lot of flexibility and they've also been able to move really quickly. So, you know, there was just the market reform uh, paper or market reform plan that just dropped, I think today, on everything that they're doing to try to shore up and try to reduce the volatility because natural gas is such a big uh, price setting mechanism on electricity. However, they also got really lucky. I mean, it's been a lot warmer. Uh, now, arguably, they've been getting warmer for quite some time. Going back to my peaks comment, it looks like their coldest winter was probably eight, 10 years ago. They were lucky in that uh, China was basically not at the table. Uh, they were still going through their own you know, zero COVID policy. It almost matches it. It's about 80%. Uh, the China drop relative to what we would have expected relative to Europe. So they've they've also been really lucky, but I think your concerns on that medium term is can they bring these is this demand drop permanent? Is this structural or is this just a, you know, prices are just high right now and so we brought that down. It's very clear that they're focusing much more on efficiency and trying to bring that up and you're also right that kind of coming up against you know, how do you secure LNG, which generally wants a very long-term contract with the fact that you want to try to kind of keep that relatively uh, relatively short. So I suspect there may need to be some additional flexibility within Europe over these next couple of years. They've had a, a really, you know, a, some good decisions, but also a strong run of luck. They are coming out of the winter in a much better shape than anybody was really expecting last August when we were at 300 uh, you know, euros a megawatt hour. We're now below 50. Obviously, the long run average was closer to 20, so still quite high. But I think there's going to be some more flexibility that is needed. I think the benefits that they have is they can move quickly. The EU has actually stayed together. I think there was an expectation that you know Russia would be trying to try to kind of pick it, pick them apart a little bit. And going back to our discussions about the need to build, they also, especially in Germany with the FSRUs, were able to push back and say, "We just need to get these built. These are these are critical." You know, kind of sidestep some of those uh, normal sort of ways you would you would look at it and take a much longer process. Yeah. 
And some things will be more challenging. So you can make a lot of progress quickly if you reduce gas and electricity demand. You can grow renewables quickly in electricity generation and displace fossil fuels that way. But some things are harder. In the industry, for example, trying to find alternatives for fossil fuels in really energy-intensive industries like cement and steel and chemicals, that's harder to do. And it does depend on you know, how fast you can increase the deployment and competitiveness of hydrogen, how much you can drive costs down. There's a lot of uncertainties about you know, whether or not that's a, a longer-term solution. So it ain't over yet in terms of thinking about medium to long-term transitions. What I'm hoping for is, so every big change in terms of like new technology or, or things come up is always, a comp- always accompanied by a bubble. And I am really hoping and looking forward to a bit of a bubble as it relates to the, you know, the IRA uh, and Europe's uh, counterpart to it, because there is a lot of interest and a lot of incentive to throw a lot of money at some of these projects. And I'm hoping that the investors get as excited as they've gotten in the past. And hopefully there will be a bit of a bubble. But what is left in the aftermath of these bubbles is often a changed landscape that can that can really improve us and get us back, you know, get us into the position that we are striving to get to in terms of trying to meet that net zero target. Yeah. I mean, as you said, I think one of the the goals of the Inflation Reduction Act was to incentivize investment in so many different areas that will be able to drive down costs and realize economies of scale. And some of these technologies, which are not unproven, but they haven't been deployed yet, will suddenly become much more competitive over the next five years plus, right? And it's hard to anticipate how that's going to go. I mean, to tie back to your, your question about you know transitions in the past and how they've worked, we don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know how this is going to work. But maybe it's an appropriate use of all the levers of government to try to seed investment in all these areas and then see which one flourishes. Yeah, I think I think instead of picking winners, just pick, you know, potential winners, just a whole bunch of because it, I think you're right, is is that there is such a need to really have just a lot of, of growth. So some of my research has looked at like kind of all the expense and all the investment that was done in World War II. And it, you know, it reshaped America. I mean, it just like, it put in a lot of infrastructure that was beneficial long after the war was over in terms of skill sets, in terms of infrastructure, uh, just in terms of, you know, change neighborhoods. What I'm hoping is that this, that there is enough investment that this really does change the landscape out there. Great, Jamie. I think we're uh, about out of time and that seems like a good note to end it. But thank you so much for coming in and talking about these themes, which have been top of mind for me and for our program at CSIS. Always good to see you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks to Ben and Jamie for joining Energy 360 today. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to your podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.